all 19 of us. Everybody had a good week? Mine was good. Mine was good. Um, seems like forever since we've been here because we did that church at the lake thing. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Hannah and I and Glennie and, and uh, Adrian Butler and uh, Disco, we went down to Atlanta to do a worship conference and we led some worship and um, we took what we do here and we, and we took it down there to, um, to hang out with all the vineyard worship leaders in the southeast region and while we were doing worship, presence of God came into the room, which is normal, and uh, during that moment, I, I don't know, Hannah breaks off this prophetic song, and in the middle of the prophetic song, I look up, and like, people are laying on the ground, and then for the next three days, they keep coming up to us and asking, what was that thing that she did? I'm like, it's just what she does, and um, so it was really cool uh, to get to take a lot of what we do here and just transplant it somewhere else and see that God really does love showing up when we... Um, when we turn our hearts to him. Um, here's what I want to do this morning. Um, if it would be all right with you, I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. We're going we're gonna to see how much of this that we can do this morning. We're going we're gonna to try to absorb an entire chapter this morning. Luke chapter 15, it's a pretty famous spot in the scripture we're gonna we're gonna do our very best to nail all three uh all three parables this morning but before we get into that uh, i want to begin with this um before we get into that i want to begin with this and it was uh, actually a theme in our worship it was sort of an accidental theme this morning in worship but um i want to begin with this that that our god is a god of love and um, not only that, but it's it's not just um, it's not just a um, it's not just a it's not just a thing that we teach in Sunday school, but but the fact that God is a God of love is it's the most basic element of who He is, and it's the essence of who He is. Uh, if you were to if you were able to somehow uh, capture God, if you were able to um, put him in a pot and boil him down and reduce him to his most basic elements, the reduction that would come out would be a love sauce because it's who he is. It's just who he is. You could, you could take your microplane and you could scrape it across him and the dust that came off of God would be love. It, it's just the most basic element and it's the essence. It's the essence of who he is. And that's the reason that... Um, that's the reason that in 1 John 4, 8, it says, you know, it says it's just, it's the most basic and the most simple scripture maybe in all the Bible. But in some ways, I'm, the older I become in the Lord, the more I'm realizing how profound it is. And it's 1 John 4, 8, it's just, man, if you, if you guys don't know love, then you don't know God because God is love. It's just the essence of who he is. And so um, before we get into the scripture this morning, I, I want to I wanna just... I want us to align our hearts and minds around, around who God is, is that he is, he is love, He is a lover. And because of that, what that means is, when I align myself with love, I align myself with the Lord. When I align myself with love, I align myself with God. And to choose to love is to choose God. And this is right along those same lines. A search for love is a search for God. How many of you are aware that, that every single person on the planet is looking for love? It's like, that, it's, like that old, it's like that old Saturday Night Live sketch, looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah, See, everyone's looking for love, and the thing, that, the thing that most of us aren't aware of is that a search for love is actually a search for the Lord. Because to align myself with love is to align myself with God to choose love is to choose God. To search for love is to search for God. And to manifest love, that's, that's, that's to manifest God. It's impossible to manifest God without manifesting love. And so, just some conclusions we can draw from that. So if you've ever witnessed compassion, 
you've seen the Lord. And if you've ever experienced mercy, then you've been touched by God. And if you've ever been forgiven, then you've been near the Lord. There's a really famous scripture. It's in Exodus 34. I really love it. And it's the mantra of the Old Testament. It's the song of the Old Testament. It gets sung over and over again. And it's in Exodus 34, chapter, chapter 34, 6 and 7. And uh, this is what it writes. It says, and this is, when, this is when the glory of the Lord passed in front of Moses. And when the Lord went in front of Moses, he didn't, just, he didn't just allow his presence and his glory to go in front of him. But as he went by, the Lord proclaimed, basically sang a song about himself, okay? And this was the lyrics of the song. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so over and over again in the scriptures, the scriptures, they proclaim that our God is a God of love. And it's impossible, it's absolutely impossible to be, it's, it's impossible to align ourselves with love and not, and not at the same time becoming closer to the Lord. See, there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of religious mindsets concerning how you get close to the Lord, and a lot of the religious mindsets that allow you to get close to the Lord actually don't require that you grow in love. See, here's the deal. If you're, if you're not required to grow in love, you're not actually growing in God's kind of, God's kind of who God is. It's impossible to know him apart from love. And here's the really dangerous and the tragic thing. The dangerous and the tragic thing is that a lot of us a lot of us have grown up with more of more of an awareness that God is a judge than we have that God is love. And so because of that, most of us, if we were to be honest, and I feel like I can I feel like I can generalize here, but most of us in the room wilt when we come next to God, we wilt when we begin to talk about God, and the reason that we wilt is because we are more convinced that God is a judge than we are that God is love. Make no mistake, God is a judge, and he will judge. And, but here's the deal, even his judgments flow out of his love. Not only that, but the scriptures declare that God has a preference. And his preference is mercy. Did you know that the Lord would prefer mercy over judgment? That's what James says. James chapter 2 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's a good one to put in your car. See, it's, it's the preference of the Lord. It's the preference of the Lord. He would rather choose mercy than he would judgment. Think about your own lives. Think about how many times you've been a huge bonehead. And, and you even knew that you were being a huge bonehead. You even knew that you were right in the middle of it. And the whole time you're being a bonehead and enjoying it, at the same time, there's this part of you that's you're beginning the internal brace because you feel like the hand smack of the Lord is getting ready to come on you. You know, one week goes by, two weeks go by, and there's no, there's no hand smack from the Lord, and you wonder, well, isn't he going to judge me, right? The reason, a lot of times, the reason that there isn't this immediate reaction from the Lord, there's, a lot of times there's not immediate discipline. It's very simple. It's because he would rather choose mercy. Here's the dangerous thing. The dangerous thing is to live in that moment where we're receiving mercy even though we're being a bonehead. The dangerous thing is to live in that moment and think that he approves of everything that's going on in my life. It's a really dangerous thing to think, oh, well, everything's cool. My life is getting the gold seal, you know. That being said, his nature is love. To align myself with love is to align myself with God. And so if you've ever witnessed compassion, then you've seen the Lord. If you've ever experienced mercy, then you've been touched by God. If you've ever been forgiven, then you've been near God. And if you've ever been shown radical mercy, then you've come into contact with the gospel. If you've ever been shown radical generosity, then you've come into contact with the gospel. And and here's the cool thing. You didn't even open up the Bible. You didn't even turn to John 3.16 yet you encountered the gospel because you encountered love. What's the point? The point is, 
The point is that the gospel is hanging out in all kinds of places. The point is that the gospel is hanging out with all kinds of people and in all kinds of places that the religious mindset actually keeps us from going there. John 3.16, it's the most famous scripture in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever would believe would have, have eternal life. You know, here's the deal. Even, even God's gift of his son, it flows out of his love. It's because that's who he is. These are just the things I've been meditating on this week <clears throat> concerning the, Lord, the love of the Lord. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the, the love chapter, um, I love 1 Corinthians 13.8 because it's the, it's the strategy for always winning. 1 Corinthians 13.8 is love never fails. A lot of us get in really hard and difficult situations and we wonder, well, how are we going to get out of this? Or how, how is this going to be made right? Well, the answer is, Love. Love makes everything right. Love never fails. So to align myself with love is to align myself with God. To align myself with love is actually to align myself with victory. Because love never fails. And this is actually a great comfort because we're living in a world and we're living in a time right now when rather, th- rather than things becoming more black and white, I don't know if you've realized this but in your life, but it's certainly been true in my life, uh, we're living in a time when things are actually becoming increasingly gray. You know what I'm talking about? It seems like, it seems like I, I, you know, people come into my office with problems, or you know, not just that other people have problems and I don't. I'm, I'm full of problems. My wife and I, we stay up late sometimes, and we roll around in the bed, and we're, we talk about our problems. That sounded bad. <laughs> actually, that sounded awesome, but... I, had, I thought of four awesome things, and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> But, but occasionally, Heather and I will stay up at night and we'll begin to talk about our problems. And you're, we look for an increasingly, we look for the answer. We look for it to be increasingly black and white. And one of the things I found is it's becoming increasingly gray. It's like, well, which is the right thing? Well, heck, I don't know. Here's one of the things I've learned. In the middle of gray... There's always, there's always a spot where we can choose love. And in the middle of gray, if we choose love, we actually are choosing the right answer and we're choosing alignment with God and we're choosing victory. Sometimes all you have to do is just ask yourself, what would love do? See, the religious thing would keep you asking yourself, what would God do? Sometimes the question, what would God do, doesn't help me. I don't know if you've ever realized that. You know, the armband, what would Jesus do? Man, sometimes I don't even know. Sometimes the easier, the easier question to answer is, what would love do? Once, if you can answer what would love do, then you know what Jesus would do. Sometimes it makes it more immediate and more present. Sounds like a party over there, doesn't it? So what I want to do this morning is I want to investigate the love of the Lord. And I want to investigate the love of the Lord not so that we can become better equipped scripture soldiers. I'm really not interested in becoming a better equipped scripture soldier. But I want to investigate the love of the Lord a little deeper here this morning. So that we can become children of the kingdom who move with heaven's priority. Because heaven has a priority system and it's all based upon love. Um, let's read a few scriptures. Uh, actually, I tell you what, just close your Bible this morning. I want to read to you the scriptures. I don't even know why I had you do that. Because I'm going to read out of the message this morning. Because Luke 15 is actually better in the message. A few verses here. Luke, first, Luke 15, verse 1. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus and they were listening intently. The Pharisees and the religious scholars were not pleased. No, they were not pleased at all. And they growled. He takes in sinners and he eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And so their grumbling triggered some stories from Jesus. 
Isn't that good? It's kind of fresh. Yeah, Luke chapter 15. It opens up in this really familiar, fa- this really familiar fashion. Uh, this is the second time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has been hanging out with tax, coll- tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. And because he hangs out with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes, and what's the word? It's people of doubtful reputation. Because, people, because Jesus hangs out with people of doubtful reputation, the religious professionals get really stirred up and they become angry about it and they begin to grumble. And in their anger and in their grumbling, Jesus decides to tell three stories. And um, our, our hope for at least, at least most of us in the room, I hope that um, this is somewhat comforting because if you ca- in case you haven't figured this out about yourself, I'm sure you figured it out about someone else sitting in the room, that most of us here are people of doubtful reputation. It's really true. And, one of, and, and a lot of times you'll figure it out about the person sitting in front of you way before you will about yourself. But people, people of doubtful reputation are 100% at home with Jesus. While religious professionals are not. It's like staggering. People who studied the Bible their entire lives and had the first five books of the Bible 100% perfectly memorized and probably had most of the law and the prophets memorized all the way up through were uncomfortable around the person that those books were written about while tax collectors, sinners, thieves, and prostitutes were comfortable around the Lord. What, is, what, is this, what does this mean? What does this mean? It means that love has a completely different way and approach around people. See, our God is a God of love, and he's such a God of love, and it's perfectly pictured in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect picture of love. He's the kind of picture of love that is attractive to people who are completely jacked up, okay? And here's the thing about love. In order for love to be real, love has to be, it has to be, uh, it has to be grounded within the context of relationships, because love outside of the context of actual human relationships is just meaningless philosophy. Okay? So the love of God, it, it, the context for the love of God is, is contact with actual people, and actual people who are actually jacked up, who have screwed up lives. Jesus comes to them. They're comforted by his presence. Okay? This is what, this is what kills me about the scriptures. Those people are comforted by his presence, And the love of God isn't an esoteric philosophy. It's actually an immediate reality. And it's an immediate reality within human relationships, even jacked up, messed up human relationships. And so that should be good news because that's us. A couple questions, though, um, before before we begin to pick the scriptures apart a little bit this morning. Because I think these are actually pretty important questions. The love of God, it is, it is, always, it is always found within the context of, of actual relationships. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perfect love and affection for one another. And then Jesus the Son coming to reconcile actual men who are jacked up to himself. A couple questions for us, though. Question number one is, am I drawn to him? It sounds like a simple question, but it's actually... It actually hits a little harder than that. Am I drawn to Jesus? Let me frame it like this. Am I drawn to Jesus because people of questionable reputation were drawn to him? There were two kinds of people at the beginning of the story. There was one group of people, tax collectors, sinners, thieves, and prostitutes, people with all kinds of problems, drug addicts. They were drawn to Jesus And then there was another kind of person, religious professionals, had the entire Bible memorized. They were not attracted to Jesus. In fact, they wanted to argue with Jesus. There are two kinds of people in the world. And the first question this morning is, am I drawn to Jesus? The question reveals 
reveals the nature of your own heart and the standing that you have before him even now. Am I drawn to Jesus? Do I realize that I'm jacked up? That's really what I'm getting at. And question number two is this. Is there anything, and I mean anything at all, that is magnetic about me? Do I have any gravity? Because here's the deal. When, when, when the light of revelation comes on your life and you realize that you're a person in need, when you really realize that you're a person in need, it puts you on a search. And that search, if you're honest, will lead you to God. All searches lead to God. We could go more onto that, but all searches are an attempt to find God. When I realize that I'm a person in need, I, I become a person on mission. My mission will lead me to God. When I get around God, I get introduced to His Son, Jesus. When I get introduced to His Son, Jesus, there is wholeness and there is healing that can come into my life. When wholeness and healing that comes from the Son, Jesus, begins to absorb and take an effect on my life, the magnetic force that made people who were of, of, of questionable reputation comfortable around Jesus is now alive and burning on the inside. And so the question now isn't just, am I attracted to Him? But is there anything about me that attracts rotten, dirty, and broken people to me? These are actually pretty important questions. Some of you are shaking your head. Here's the deal. Um, My wife and I, we we used to laugh about this. Um, And at first it it was because we were frustrated, and now we've slowly, ever so slowly, begun to realize what's actually going on and embrace it. Um, for years, Heather and I would look at each other and go, why, are we, why do we attract cuckoos? Like, what is the deal? Like, all, like, the people who show up around us, they're just crazy needy. Why are we, everyone is so needy. I'm so worn out. I have nothing left for all these needy people. And what I've come to realize is it's just a sign that there's some gravity at work on the inside, and it's the gravity of Jesus. You don't get the gravity of Jesus until you realize at at the beginning that I'm a person in need. And so all of us should be living living with, with dual realities, if you can put it this way. That we are a people in need, and we should be living with an attraction to Him. And at the same time, the more that we're around Him, the more He makes us like Him, and that gives us gravity. That makes us magnetic. People of doubtful reputation were comfortable and they were attracted to the love of God that was so perfectly displayed in Jesus. At the same time, there were some other people who were not impressed. And these were the religious professionals and they just really represent the religious mindset that actually keeps us from God because the, the religious mindset is the mindset that is most opposed to love. The religious mindset is the mindset that is most opposed to love. The religious mindset values reputation over mercy. And the religious mindset looks for ways and reasons to keep people out rather than for ways and reasons to bring people in. See, all these are little barometer checks for my own heart. Am I looking for ways and reasons to keep people excluded or am I looking for ways and reasons to bring people in? It's, it's the extent to which I'm given over to love or I'm given over to just a religious mindset. The religious mindset is also in love with the rules. And the religious mindset will memorize and theorize about the rules to the point that Jesus actually becomes a problem. That's what happens. You realize the guys who are upset at Jesus at the beginning of this chapter, they're the guys who have studied the most, have memorized the most, and who are, quote, in love with the scriptures the most. Yet the person that the scriptures testify and prophesy about is in the room with them, and he's actually become a problem. Yeah, see, the religious mindset opposes love, and it, it loves the rules, and theorizes about the rules, and memorizes the rules, and, and applies the rules in such a way that Jesus eventually becomes the problem instead of the solution. And you might be thinking, well, this isn't me. Well, here's the only problem. The only problem is that we've grown up in a, we've grown up in a culture and we've grown up in a system. And the, and the culture and the system, especially the church culture and the church system that we've grown up in, it's been, it's been organized in such a way 
that 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 in an in an attempt to uh, attain and acquire holiness, we've actually separated ourselves from the very people that Jesus came to seek and save. And so one of the problems is, and you think, well, this isn't me. You know, I'm not a religiously mindsetted person. I'm not. I'm not religious. I'm. I'm a person who embodies love. Except that most of us have grown up in a system, and we've even probably taken it on. If we were to be that honest, we begin to taking it on. And and when it, what it looks like when we take it on is this: is it's that I can't associate with them because they're bad people. And if I associate with bad people, then I might become bad. You know. And we we look for ways and reasons to dissociate ourselves from bad people rather than realizing that solution is on the inside of me because I know solution, I've met solution, and I've fallen in love with solution. And now, I'm, now holiness actually is, is, it doesn't mean to be separated from some people, but it means to actually go to them. See, one of the things that we need to do is we need to redefine what holiness is altogether. Holiness isn't about being separated away from the bad people. Holiness is realizing that I've met the solution, that his name is Jesus, and holiness is not about being separated from the bad people, but it's about being connected to him. And when you get connected to him, it changes the whole mindset. And so you can't operate in the religious spirit and continue, and continue to meet Jesus in this sort of way. To the extent that I've met the solution is the extent to which gravity is at work in my life, magnetism is at work in my life, and I'm actually called to go and find the ones that three weeks ago I was trying to run away from. See, the problem isn't people, and the problem isn't their problems either. The real problem is that there are people of doubtful reputation living all around us that are not encountering the solution of the kingdom that's alive inside of us. That's the real problem. And so here's what, here's what happens. Religion looks for ways to keep love from manifesting, and it does this based upon the rules. Every time, and you, if you, can do, you can even do a quick survey even now or sometime this afternoon, there have probably been times in your life where your heart's been pricked and you've known the love, you, you've known instantly what love would, would do in a situation. You've even wanted to do it, but then you've had reasons not to do it. You've come up with four reasons really quick why not to do it. You pull up to a four-way intersection, and there's a, a beggar on the corner, and he's asking for money. And instantly, your heart and your gut reaction is, well, let's just, let me just reach in my pocket and give him everything I have. But before you can get your hand in your pocket, you have four reasons why you shouldn't do this. And usually the number one is, well, he's just going to go buy booze. Maybe he will, or maybe he won't. Maybe he's going to McDonald's. What would love do? Love would stick its hand in the pocket and give him everything you have. You know? And it, and it slowly works that way. And that's how religion works. It, it's, the, it's the slow decline, to, it's the slow decline to, to step away from the activity of love and to step into to the legalism that, that the rules keep us, keep us trapped in. And so Jesus, he's not going to have any of this, and so he tells three stories. Isn't it funny how Jesus deals with problems? He deals with problems by telling stories. Let me, let me read you the first two parables, okay? You can close your Bible. I just want you to listen, all right? So here's the deal. All three of these stories that Jesus tells... They're told in response to the fact that the Pharisees and the religious scholars are offended because Jesus takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And their grumbling triggered this story. This is Jesus. Suppose that one of you had a hundred sheep and he lost one. Wouldn't you leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? And when found, you can be sure you'd put it across your shoulders, rejoicing, And when you got home, you'd call all your friends and neighbors saying, Celebrate with me. I found my lost sheep. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. Or imagine a woman who has 10 coins and loses wood. Won't she light a lamp and scour the house 
looking in every nook and cranny until she finds it. And when she finds it, you can be sure she'll call her friends and her neighbors. Celebrate with me. I've lost my coin. I found my lost coin. Count on it. That's the kind of party God's angels throw every time one lost soul turns to God. Yeah, it's actually good news, huh? See, here's the deal. These first two stories that Jesus tells, these first two parables that Jesus tells, did you, did you guys notice that they're basically the same story, different settings? One is about a, one is about a shepherd. He's got 99, he's got 100 sheep. 99 of them are safe and sound. One is just run off, and the shepherd goes and grabs it and brings it back, throws it on his shoulders with joy, brings it back. And Jesus says, well, you know, there's even more joy than that in heaven. And then the other story is about a woman who loses one of her 10 coins, and she turns the house upside down to find the coin. She finds it, and she calls her friends. And Jesus says, that's the kind of party that goes on in heaven when, when one sinner comes to his senses. And here's what I want to tell you. When Jesus begins to tell these stories, these first two stories, which are very similar, are actually really directed at the Pharisees, okay? They're really, really pointed. So the Pharisees, they're upset because Jesus hangs out with people of, of questionable reputation. And Jesus tells these two stories, and this is basically what he's saying. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you guys are the kind of people, you guys are the kind of people who if you had 100 sheep and 99 of them were fine, that you would go and you would, you would look all over the countryside to find the one sheep. And when you found it, you, not, only that, not only would you find it, but you would pick the sheep up, you would put the sheep on, it, on your shoulders, and there would probably be sheep poop all over it, but you wouldn't care because you found it, and there would be sheep poop all over you. And on the, whole, on the way home, you would be so happy. You guys are shaking your heads. You've never seen a sheep, right? I mean, the wool doesn't just keep the cold out. It hangs on to stuff. I've seen sheep. So you would, he's saying you're the kind of people who would grab a sheep. You would, you would put its, its poopy wool all over your shoulders, and you would, you would go back to the 99. And the, on the way back, you would, you would go so with, with rejoicing. And Jesus goes on to tell him another story. He says, you guys are the kind of people who if you lost one of your ten coins, you would turn the whole house upside down to find the one coin. I don't know if you've noticed this, but both of those stories are about what? Material things. Jesus is saying, he's saying, Pharisees, you're the kind of people who would reorganize your life and all of your joy is built around material things, yet in the kingdom of God, God's priority is on people. He's saying, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I, he says, in heaven, there's more joy over a sinner who turns to the Lord. There's more joy over a sinner who comes to his senses than there is over a shepherd who goes and finds one sheep when he's only lost one out of the hundred. Not only that, but Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of heaven, the heaven's priority is like this, that our God, he's such a God of love that he is not satisfied with 99% wholeness. He's saying, even, even with 99% wholeness, that he's the kind of shepherd who will go out and he will find it. He says, you know, you guys are going out and looking for sheep. He says, I'm going out and I'm looking for people. Because I'm solution. And 99% is not good enough. And even if you, lose, even if you only lose 10% of your money, you, you, turn all of your, you turn your whole house upside down. But Jesus is saying, I'm the kind of person, I won't let even 1% of my flock go away from me. He's saying, you know, you guys are the kind of people who go out and shoulder a sheep and run him across the canyons. He says, I'm the kind of person who goes out and shoulders people and runs them back to my house. Another question this morning, uh, if it's okay. But what have you shouldered lately because of love? What, what has love caused you to, to pick up? lately the other thing I'd like to point out before we move on is that in both of these first stories there's lots of joy right see here's the deal joy is a priority in the kingdom and and the work of love is not divorced from joy one of the ways that you know that you're beginning to to lose 
one of the ways that you, that you know that you're beginning to lose contact with kingdom love and you're beginning to move into a religious mindset is when, when your life becomes more marked by complaining and grumbling than it is with joy. The work of joy is not a work, is not a heavy burden. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And there is joy, there's joy in the kingdom's kind of work. That's actually a really good word even if I did say it. And so all of this climaxes with his third story. And it's Luke chapter 15. Let me just read it to you. Let me read, let me read some, some more verses. So Jesus has begun to make his point with his first two stories, but he's going to drive it home in his third. And he says, There once was a man who had two sons, and the younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them, and it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and he left for a distant country. And there, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted every single thing that he had. Now by the time Jesus tells the third story, when he begins this story... The beginning of this story would have been so shocking that everyone in the room who wasn't listening would have tuned right in, okay? Because Jesus is telling a story, and this story so upsets the apple cart of the way tradition worked at that time. So Jesus is telling a story, and the story just goes like this. There's a father, and he had two sons. Nothing new about that, except that the younger son comes to him one day, and he says, Dad, I want everything. I want, I want, he says, I want my inheritance, and I want it right now. Anybody in here in the room ever done that to their father? Dad, I want my inheritance, and I want it today. Basically, what the younger son was saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's the truth of what he was communicating to your father. He's saying, I wish you were dead, so I could go ahead and have my cut of the inheritance. And he was the younger son, and because of that, he would have gotten a third. And this is the strange thing. The father hears him and does it. The father hears him and does it. Here's the strange thing. How generous is the father? See, what this story is about is it's, it's about the father's kind of love. The father, the father is, such a, is such a kind and he's so generous and his heart of love is so connected to his sons that even when one of his sons comes to him with a request that's absolutely absurd even when his, one of his, his younger son comes to him and asks him for something that basically communicates dad I wish you were dead his father gives him the request Jesus is telling like 19 stories all at one time here one of the things he's communicating to us is this is that our father will take us seriously um, here's the, the father one of the things that Jesus is communicating to us is that the Father's heart of love extends to our own freedom to make choices, even bad ones. And we know what happens. The younger son, he goes off and he spends, he spends his estate. And, and, and before he does that, he has to pack up his estate. And, and this is the thing I like to think about. Imagine that, that you, you've got one brother and your father is probably at least relatively well off. You go to your dad. You say, Dad, I want my inheritance and I want it today. Dad somehow liquidates or separates out the assets. And then, then what it says in the story is, it says the younger son took some time, gathered his things, and he left for a distant country. Can you imagine packing up one-third of your mom and dad's estate and setting off for a distant country? What did he do? I mean, did he, did he round up all his sheep? Did he sell all the sheep? Did he liquidate it? How long would it take to liquidate a third of your mom and dad's estate? Some of you have lost parents, and, and you, you've got brothers and sisters, and so you've liquidated mom and dad's estate so that you can settle it with your brothers. I, I know people who have done that. It takes months to get that stuff worked out, right? So what we're talking about here is we're talking about a rebellion 
against your father that doesn't happen in one day. No, it was months coming, years coming, and after you've made the decision and you've spoken an utterly abusive word to your father, it actually takes months to unpack it. You know what I'm talking about? It wasn't just like you had a bad day, your dad ticked you off, and you said, Dad, that's it, I've had it up to here. I want what's coming to me, give me my third, and I'm out. And then tomorrow you wake up and realize, wow, I've made a really bad choice. No, he woke up the next day, and he was just as committed to it. He was committed to it to the point that he sold his land, whatever that was. He sold one-third of the land. He sold one-third of the sheep. He, he took the hay that was in the barns, and he got rid of it, and he packed his money bags full. This probably would have taken months, and he sets out for a distant country. And so when he does that, what he's saying is this. He's not just saying, Dad, I don't want... He's not just saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, but he's also da- saying, Dad, I want to break ties with even the way that you run your house. So it's not just a rejection of the father, but it's also a rejection of the father's ways. And he sets out into a distant country, and we all know the story. He sets out into a distant country. He wastes his money and everything that his father has given him on women, song, booze, gambling, just who knows. He wastes his money, and in a short time, he's left with nothing. In a short time, he's left with nothing. And I want you to imagine this. You're a Jewish kid... And you end up in a pig pen. There's no place lower. In case you didn't know, you know, Jews don't eat pork because it's unclean. Okay? So you're a Jewish kid and you end up in the pig pen. You end up in such a bad state that you you'd begin to say, Oh, if I just had the slop that the pigs were eating. See, this was an act of utter rebellion. It was total rejection. It was rejection of the Father and His ways. And it led to disaster. And some of us in the room, we think that that rebellion runs like this. We think that we can accept the Father and reject His ways. I'm telling you, it's one and the same. When you reject the Father's ways, you're actually rejecting Him. And when you begin to reject the Father, when you begin to reject His ways, one of the things you're doing is you're actually inviting disaster into your life. Yeah, when we end up rejecting our Father and His ways, we end up in places that we never would have imagined. Sometimes in life we endure hardship and we wonder, how in the world did I get here? Where did this come from? Some of us go through hard times like money gets tight or something. Credit card bill gets a little bigger than you can handle and you're barely making the minimum payment. And you wonder, how did I get here? And then like three months later you begin to think, what is God trying to teach me? I would like to interject, God's not trying to teach you anything. You just did it. Like most most, most hard situations don't really have anything to do with the Lord other than, other than He's loved you so much that He's given you the power of choice. Most, most hard times and bad situations, they come from right here. I'd go so far as to say 85% of the jacked up situations. Kevin is saying 90. I'm going with Kevin. 90% of the jacked up, really difficult things in life, we are tempted at times to think, you know, someone, the devil is getting me, you know, or God is after me. It's always like God or the devil, you know. Most of the time, it's just you. It's just me. And this is why, this is why rejection of the Father and His ways is so dangerous. It's one of the things the parable is trying to teach us. Father is the Father of love. And most of what we, we call discipline from the Lord actually isn't even discipline from the Lord. It's actually just bad choices, and it's just the fruit that's grown from the seeds of bad choices made year after year. And so then, then the son, he comes to his senses. Scripture says, and all of that brought him to his senses, and he says, Man, all those farmhands working for my father, they sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned before you. I don't, I don't deserve to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired hand. 
And he got right up and he went home to his father. You know, there's nothing like hard times to bring you to your senses, right? There's nothing like the clarity that comes from being in the pig pen. I've been, I, have, I have been in the pig pen. I've actually taken three or four rounds in the pig pen. There's, there's nothing like the clarity that comes from being in the pig pen. I, I may go to the pig pen again one day. I'm avoiding it like the plague. I think I've caught on to a few things, but I'm avoiding it. But there is just a certain kind of clarity that only comes from the pig pen. And so some clarity comes to the younger son, at least partially, and he says, man, even at least the farmhands who work for my dad get three square meals a day. I'll go home, and I'll, and I'll just beg my dad to be a farmhand. Now, do you realize that the clarity he had is still pretty much a self-preservation clarity, right? He's like, well, at least I'll have something to eat, you know? It's not even that I'm going to love my father. This is actually really important. The clarity that he has is actually still just a self-preservation clarity. It's, it's really not even about I'm going to go home and love my father. The, the speech that he writes, it's a good speech, by the way. Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you. Please take me on as a hired hand. You know, it's a good speech. But the speech that he has, so skillfully crafted, is really just a speech about ensuring that he becomes a hired hand so that he can survive. It's still, it's still survival. It's still preservationist. It really has very little to do with the fact that the father is a father of love. But even then, a change, a change in the mind leads to a change in action. He changes his mind about where he's at. It's a picture of repentance. He changes his mind about where he's at. And it's, it's utterly imperfect repentance. And one of the things I like to say about that is, is, is that most of the, like 98% of the time, no one, no one repents perfectly. Like all repentance is like totally jacked up. No, no one does it really well. That's why I love this story. It's, it's that you can get most of the repentance wrong. It can still be about self-preservation. And it still turns out right. And the reason it turns out right is because we have a loving Father. And I love this. It, the, the Scripture says this. Well, I'll read it. It says, When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. It's really good. Yeah, when he was a long way off, his father saw him. And his heart was pounding, and so he ran out and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son, he started his speech. He said, Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you, and I don't deserve to be called your son. But the father wasn't listening. He wasn't listening because he was calling his servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. And put the family ring on his finger. And get the best sandals and put them on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and let's roast it because we're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time because my son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And then they began to have a wonderful time. See, one of the things the scripture tells us is this, is that the father saw him because he was, saw him in a distance. And the reason that the father saw him in a distance is because the father had always been looking for him. See, even in, in, even in imperfect repentance, even in, in, in repentance that's really just about self-preservation, even, even in repentance, let me put it this way, for some of us who have a ministry heart, even in, in, even in repentance that's just about preserving my position for ministry, even repentance that's that jacked up, the Lord will accept it because he's the kind of father and his, he's got the long view on this thing and he's been looking for you. He's been looking for people of, 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 questionable, of questionable stock his entire life. He's, he's always looking. The father is always looking. And so here's, here's the point. If you turn your heart even this much toward the Lord, you've actually just stepped into the gaze of the father. See, at the moment, even if you don't totally turn around like this, even if you just do this, even if you just do this, 
You just, t- you just turned one inch into the gaze of the Father. And at the moment you turn into the gaze of the Father, because the Father is looking in a certain kind of direction. See, the Father is looking, He's looking for sons who want to come home. See, a lot of times we think the Father's looking in all these other directions. He's actually only looking in one direction. And so repentance is about turning my life into the direction of the Father so that He can be seen. When I'm seen by the Father, He calls the servants and He puts a good robe on me. And he puts a good thing, he puts a, a family ring on my finger. And the reason is, is because he's a father of love. See, the younger son had determined in his heart to come back. But he had determined in his heart to come back and only live as a day laborer, a servant of the house. But the father would have none of that. The father, the father will not have his sons and daughters living as day laborers or servants in the house. This is actually really powerful, okay? Because what it points to is this. You, you, you might have started off at the beginning as a sinner, thief, tax collector, prostitute, drug addict, jacked up person. You may have started out as those six and a half things. And at some point in your life, while you were in the pig pen, you turned, you turned home this much, and when you turned home this much, you, you came upon the Father's horizon, and when you came upon the Father's horizon, he put, into, he put into action a plan that makes you something more than a prostituting, thieving, tax-collecting, no-good, son-of-a-gun, drug addict. And he will not let you stay as a hired hand. He calls you up to be a son and a daughter. What this means is, it means you cannot, actually, you cannot actually follow Jesus for 35 years and be the same person you were when you met him back in 1974. It means that if you are the same kind of person that you were back in 1974, just as angry, just as drug addicted, just as, just as tormented on the inside, it means that you have not turned toward the Father. Because he will not let his sons and his daughters stay the same. He comes out and he says, put a, robe on the son, put a robe on the boy and put a finger on his hand. And in, in the Bible, the robe represents authority. And the finger was the family ring. And it represents authority as well. Authority is what? Authority is a son. You don't get to stay, you don't get to stay jacked up in the kingdom. That's a good word too. See, some of us have become very, some of us have lived so long in the pig pen that we've become comfortable with the pig pen. Doesn't smell that bad. When it's really hot, the mud feels good, you know? I mean, they feed me every day. I'm getting fat, just like the pigs. You know, there, there, there is a certain point in time when you can live in the pig pen so long that you don't even realize that it's a pig pen anymore. It's become home. And what I want to tell you is, that's not the way the kingdom of heaven works at all. When, when you begun, when you turned your heart toward the Lord, even one inch, and when, when your life fell upon the horizon of the Father, He will not let you stay jacked up. If you're staying jacked up, it's, it's, only because you, it's only because you took off and ran away from home again. Let me say it this way. Sonship and daughtership can't be forfeited because it's in the blood. Sonship and daughtership cannot be forfeited because it's in the blood. And all this time, his older son was out in the field. And when the day's work was done, he came in. And as he approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And calling one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. And he told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef. And because he has come, because he has come home safe and sound. And the older brother stalked and he ran off in anger. And he sulked and he refused to join in. And his father came out and tried to talk to him. 
But he wouldn't listen. The son said, look how many years I've stayed here serving you. The NIV says, look at, look at how many years I've slaved for you. Never giving you one moment of grief. The NIV there says, never disobeying one of your commands. But, you, but have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours, who has thrown away your money on whores, shows up, and you go out with a feast. And his father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time, and everything that's mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate, because this, brother's, this brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Yeah, so the older brother, he's, he's out in the field and he's working hard. And when he comes in, he hears the sound of music. And he's like, what's going on? And he gets one of the servants to tell him what's up. And, and the servant tells him, well, we're having a party because your brother came home. And the older brother becomes very angry and goes outside and he begins to sulk. And I know what sulking is about because I've done it. And I also know what sulking is about because I have three kids. And they don't hide their emotions well, you know. No, you cannot have ice cream. So it hits the fan. And I want you to notice that the, the, the father who, who runs out to meet the younger son who squandered his wealth is also the same father who goes out to meet the older brother and try to bring him in. See, see our father, is, he's a father of love. He's, he's always looking to make reconciliation. And the older brother, he starts his speech, and his speech begins with, you know, here I am, I'm, I've been serving you. And in the NIV, it says, I've been slaving for you all these years. So here it is. It's not just enough to be in the Father's house. Can I tell you something? It's not just enough to be in the Father's house. You've got to be connected to the Father. See, the, the older brother said, said, I've been here slaving for you all these years. The older brother saw himself as a slave in his Father's house. The younger brother comes to his senses and says, I'm just going to sell myself back to my father as a hired servant. Both brothers, both brothers have a servant's mentality, and it's the, father, it's the work of the father that brings sonship and daughtership. And the older brother says, well, Dad, I've, I've, never, I, I've never disobeyed one of your commands, which every time I read that, I laugh, because his dad just said, come inside. And he won't do it. And his speech begins with, here it is all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never given you one minute's trouble. I've never disobeyed you. And, except you just did like 15 minutes ago. What's the point? Now, we, we can fall in love with our own story. Like deception, once deception starts to work, it can deceive you to the lie that you're telling right now. He's lying to his father. He's completely, and here's the deal, I think the older brother is completely unaware he's lying to his father. He actually believes he's never disobeyed his father, except his father just said, come in the house and celebrate. That's the thing about deception. That's the thing about, that's the thing about operating outside of the father's love. It brings deception, and when deception sets in, you get completely deceived even to your own lie, and you, become, you just fall in love with your own story. See, both sons had lost their identity as sons, and they'd become slaves, one outside the house and one inside the house. And the doorway into slavery is to live outside of the Father's love. Living outside of the Father's love is the doorway into slavery. You see, both sons had it in their heart to live away from their father. One son actually did it. The other son revealed his heart when he said, number one, I've never given you a minute's trouble. Number two, I've been slaving for you all these years. And you won't even, number three, you won't even give me a goat that I can go and celebrate with my friends. Who did the, younger, the older brother want to celebrate with? His friends, not his father. Both sons had it in their hearts to celebrate without their father. So here's the deal. Living your life apart from an experience, an ongoing encounter of the father's love is the open door into slavery. And you can live in the father's house where there's protection and still be a slave. You can live in the Father's house where there's blessing and be a slave. 
You can live in the Father's house where there's blessing, there's abundance, where there's joy, and be unable to partake in any of it. But the Father, He's a Father of love. He's a Father of forgiveness and acceptance. And this is what He says. He says, this, brother's, this brother of yours was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. One last thing and we'll be done. I'd like to point out that life and death, lostness and foundness, they're connected to whether or not we're connected to the Father. Life and death, lostness and foundness, all all find themselves surrounded by, am I or am I not connected to my Father? To the extent that I am not connected to my Father, I am lost. To the extent that I am not meaningful, meaningfully connected to the love of my Father, I am, I am utterly dead. I can live in His house. He can be around me every day. I can come to church here. Everyone, everyone in the church can be, be touched. Everyone in the church can be saved. Everyone in the church can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Everyone in the church can be full of joy. Everyone in the church can be full of laughter. Yet, apart from a personal encounter with the love of my Father, and an ongoing encounter with the love of my Father, I'm dead. I'm dead to all of that. I'm, I'm dead to that. I'm, I'm, I'm lost to it. And so that's, what's, that's what the Father wants to do today. Um, the Father wants to convince everyone who needs to, everyone who would like to be convinced this morning that He's a Father of love. Why don't we stand up? If you're on the ministry team this morning, you can come on forward. Thank you. Yeah, he is the dad of love. Here's what I want to do this morning. It, it's really simple. Uh, there, there are a lot of people in the room. Um, there are a lot of people in the room, and um, some of us in the room this morning are most assuredly the younger brother. You just know it. You, you have taken all that God has blessed you with. You have taken even, even the, the financial blessings that have come your way, and you look back, and you've got nothing to show for it, and there's a significant part of your life that's just been been damaged by poor choices. And if you really were to be honest about your choices, the choices are located in the fact that you just wanted to do your own thing. And there, there's some people here who just need to come back to the love of the Father. There are also some people here who have, who have stayed in the Father's house, and, and you've worked incredibly hard at staying in the Father's house. And in fact, you've made it your life's mission to stay in the Father's house. And in, and in doing so... You've done a pretty good job of keeping your life straight, but the, 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 just the fire of love has grown cold. Your father no longer seems like your father, seems more like a heavy-handed taskmaster. And the Lord doesn't seem like a kind and gracious father. He seems more like, he seems more like, he seems more like the bar at the high jump. Where you're just working harder and harder to jump over something that only gets higher and higher. And, and there's just, I just feel like there's a lot of people in the room right now who need, who need to be convinced again that, God, that the God we love is, is actually a God of love and has mercy and acceptance. So I'm going to pray, and this morning's ministry is just for anybody who would like to be convinced again. He is here, and he would like to convince people that he's good. So, Father, we love you this morning. Father, we say that you are the eternal Father. And, Father, we say regardless of whether our dad was a good dad or a bad dad, regardless of whether our dad was present or not present, regardless of whether our dad is with us today or not with us today, we say that life comes from you. And Father, we say that we we need an encounter with your love. So even now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd begin to convince people on the inside, in the secret places, that you are a God of love.
You know, some of us in the room grew up with fathers who, um, who loved us, but they were just hard. They were just hard men. And, and the Lord wants to just even reorient that whole perception of what a father's love is like. Father, I ask that you would just begin to touch us with, with the tenderness, God. Father, I ask that, that your heart of mercy toward us and your loving kindness would just be shed abroad in our hearts. God, I ask that, that your nature as the kind of father who, who sees a son who's been in a pig pen and grabs a great coat and a terrific ring and puts them on our finger, God, I ask that we would encounter that even now. And I ask this in your name. Amen. If you need ministry this morning, you come on up. We've got a ministry team that would love to stand with you. If not, go in peace.